This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Slate Money is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to more than 100 job sites with a single click and an interface that's easy to use. And right now, you can try it for free. Go to ziprecruiter.com slash slate money. That's ziprecruiter.com slash slate money. And by bowlandbranch.com, the company that makes luxury bedding affordable. Order right now and they'll give you 20% off plus free shipping. Get sheets, towels, blankets, duvet covers, and more at bowlandbranch.com. That's B O L L A N D B R A N C H dot com and use the promo code MONEY. And by MileIQ. If you're one of the 60 million Americans who drive for work, then you know that your miles are your dollars. MileIQ is the only mileage tracker app that detects, logs, and calculates your miles for you, ensuring that every mile is accounted for and no dollar is lost. Try MileIQ for free today by texting Slate Money to 31996. That's Slate Money to 31996. Hello, and welcome to the Breaking the Law edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion. I'm in Miami, but we have a pretty awesome lineup of people in the Slate offices in New York City. We have, as ever, Kathy O'Neill, the data scientist and blogger at mathbabe.org. Hi, Felix. We have, as ever, Jordan Weissman, the Moneybox columnist for Slate. Hello, Felix. And, and this is pretty exciting, we have at Guan. <laughs> yes, hello, Felix. <laughs> Guan, Guan Yang is a man who needs no introduction, which is just as well because no one has a clue how to introduce him. But <laughs> suffice to say that, well, I, I think I once described him, and this half of this made, made it into his Twitter bio, I once described him as the Italian vogue of tweeps, that <laughs> nobody follows him except for everybody who matters. Let's so, hope that doesn't change after this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, Guan, welcome to Slate Money. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We will, um, you know, we, we, we're going to send you out to a whole new audience. You've been writing about sex toys. You've been writing about um, technology. And you have an email. Can you 
do you want to plug your email because really it's your letter, your little irregular email, which has caused you to come onto the um, in, onto the show this week. Well, I have an email newsletter. It's at tinyletter.com slash guan, where I write about whatever interests me. It's usually some kind of financial or, or tech topic. Um, it's supposed to be more frequent, but in practice, it's, it's every couple of months. So, um, Kathy. Yeah. What, what are you going to be asking Guan about? Well, you know, everybody, well, I'm gonna, we're going to be talking with Guan about what everyone's been talking about for the last week and a half, which is Apple versus FBI. And, and he, I'm amazed that people are still interested in this story. But, uh, oh, it's a, but it keeps on getting better. I mean, this does. is one of those stories which, which just grows and grows and where it really does evolve over time. Like we were talking about doing it last week. We didn't. And I'm quite happy that we're doing it this week because we really have learned a lot over the past week. So, I mean, I guess for our listeners, where should we start? Um, everybody knows that Apple has refused to um, to comply with the uh, the judge's order that the FBI asked for, which is to to basically let them into a phone um, that their San Bernardino sh- San Bernardino shooter left when they died, um, and it's really split down the middle, like whether people think. Uh, Apple's doing the right thing, or whether whether they think Apple should just comply with the judge. And actually, so, I so actually I ha- change my mind on a daily basis myself. And and I have this feeling that like that the American population is is really split between. Um, on the one hand, you have the sort of techno libertarian, utopian, crypto types who are like, of course, Apple is doing the right thing, and then you have the law and order types who are like, of course, the FBI should be able to get into this phone. And then you have the the 1%, the cognitive elite, which is you and me and Guan, who are like, we have no idea, and it's way more complicated yeah. than that. Can I, can I speak for the law and order types? Because that's definitely the camp I initially fell into and still sort of fall into. Um, also, I need to just discuss some conflicts of interest here. Uh, my wife, I've mentioned, is a prosecutor in the Manhattan DA's office. Her boss is Cy Vance, uh, the Manhattan District Attorney, who has come out on one side of this very clearly saying, we cannot unlock 175 iPhones that are used or involved in criminal investigations right now. I personally hear about this issue at the dinner table. Like my wife will come <laughs> home and tell me about some iPhone she cannot unlock. Um, and does she have your iPhone passcode? <laughs> no. Um, but so the uh, issue. You know, I mean, I guess for me, when I first heard about the story, my gut reaction was to be very, very negative about Apple, and because I don't view it necessarily even as a terrorism issue. I, I, I kind of see it as a everyday law enforcement issue where most of these cases tend to involve things like uh, domestic abuse and rape cases mm-hmm. and regular kind of, uh, I guess, smaller crimes than terrorism that cops and prosecutors have a difficult time dealing with because they can't find information on phones. Right. So I'm personally on the side of those who say that Apple should not assist in in bypassing the passcode on this phone. Um, I think the... And, and there's sort of many different slippery slope arguments, you know, going in different directions that you could take. I think about Cy Vance's 175 phones. Um, first of all, whenever law enforcement speaks out on this issue, it's really unclear whether it's truly necessary to, to unlock these phones. Are there, is, are there other things they could have done? Is there, is there otherwise enough evidence to prosecute, uh, to investigate, and to prosecute, and to convict these suspects? And and whenever um, examples have been raised, um, there's if you Google this, there are various stories you can read sort of debunking various examples that the law enforcement side of this debate has put forward and this so-and-so case. Of course, that's just individual examples, and there might well be other examples where it truly uh, wasn't possible to investigate these cases. But 
I, I, is that I, a, is that the the Jermaine Barg one? Is it, um, do you do you think that like in order for Apple to have to cooperate, then they it should have to be, you know, unless you cooperate, we can't prosecute. Is is that like an important bar to hurdle for for law enforcement to clear here? I I think it is, and I'm going to try to explain why. Um, the so probably nothing bad will happen if Apple is forced to bypass the security on this one particular phone. If it really stops here, if it's just this one phone in, in Los Angeles, you know, the, the world is, is, is not going to collapse. Um, but if Apple really has to unlock 175 phones that Sybance produces, the, the problem is that Apple can, might be able to keep... Uh, so Apple's being, essentially being asked to create a backdoor, but a backdoor that only works on this one phone that's locked to uh, the serial number for this one phone. And Apple can probably keep that backdoor secure. But if this backdoor has to be used for 175 phones from Manhattan, or um, in, in the first half of 2015, Apple received more than 3,000 device requests that were, that were satisfied in part. That if Apple has to use a backdoor, even if it's a backdoor that's locked to particular devices more than 6,000 times in a year, it's going to be really hard to, to keep that secure and to keep that under lock and key. I'm going to interrupt there and just do something which I want to do more than once in this conversation, which is try to remove Apple from the conversation and talk about the underlying principles, which I think are actually more interesting. Um, You mentioned in your newsletter this man named Dan Bernstein, who was a graduate student at Berkeley when I was an undergrad, so I knew him. What happened to him is he built an encryption algorithm that was so good this is the the myth. You can tell me if I'm wrong. It was so good that the government basically stepped in and said, "This is classified. You can't, you can't tell people about this algorithm." And then he fought it in court, and he eventually won. But it brought up the main question, which we want to, I, I think, is more important than the Apple question, which is: Should there be algorithms that are encryption algorithms that are so good that they really work and they're completely rock solid, and then nobody can get access to it? No police. No NSA, no FBI, nobody. And the question is, should those things be allowed? I think what I would say is there are encryption algorithms that are so good that probably nobody can break them. Um, what's, that, that's definitely true. What's not true is that there are security systems that nobody can break. Algorithms are implemented. They're not just these mathematical objects that are described in academic papers with Greek letters. Algorithms are realized with code, code that runs in computers. These computers are used by humans. And security is really, really hard. The fact that Apple is able, even is, is theoretically able to comply with the San Bernardino order shows that security is really hard. That even Apple hadn't probably hadn't truly anticipated this case. So, can you explain a little bit why the perfect algorithm isn't is not enough? Yeah, it's it's because it, the perfect algorithm wouldn't you know be accessible even to the person who was using it. You the. An individual needs to be able to unlock this information relatively easily. And if an individual can unlock the information relatively easily, then there's some sort of human way of doing that. So even if there's one layer which is secure, there are probably other layers which make it easy to use, which are less secure. Right. So hackers like to talk about social engineering attacks. That's It's a way that if you want to compromise the security of a large organization, the easiest way is probably not to break in through the door or even to try to attack the computer systems or the math. It's to try to call up customer service and say, hello, my name is Jordan Weissman. I forgot my password. Could you, um, could you give it to me? Um, if you think of the algorithm itself, um, you know, they, they run on imperfect computers. They're 
implemented, realized by imperfect programmers. And there are just, uh, when you read about security systems, there are just so many different attacks and so many different ways that you can get in. I discussed in my newsletter um, the, this community of jailbreakers who are people who don't like Apple's walled garden philosophy to their phones. They try to install custom versions of iOS and they try to install apps on their iPhones that, that are not authorized by Apple. And these jailbreakers, um, you know, almost since the very first iPhone, have had pretty good success in bypassing Apple security measures, you know, which you could say are theoretically unbreakable, um, and get into their phones and, and do whatever they want with them. And besides the jailbreakers, you also mentioned that you think the NSA could break into this phone if they wanted to. I've heard that said a few times. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the evidence is for that. Um, I mean, in the... Uh, in the Ed Snowden leaks, we definitely know that the NSA spends a lot of money and a lot of time worrying about um, the security of devices like iPhones. Um, and there's there's definitely been um, you know pretty good, well substantiated reports that they've been able to break into previous iPhone iOS versions. There are commercial tools in the market right now. As far as I know, there are no tools that uh, work against uh, the latest versions of, of Apple's operating system, iOS 8 and iOS 9. But we know from past experience that there are commercial tools that for slightly older versions of iOS have been able to circumvent their security. Um, and it's just a very educated guess that given the resources at the NSA's disposal, their $10 billion a year budget, um, that they probably have some way of, of you know, at least making a, a, good, a good attempt at at this problem. Yeah, I haven't found anyone who who believes that the NSA couldn't break into this phone, which is why I think that this really is not a question of a, a debate about encryption. This is a debate about, you know, the FBI trying to compel Apple to make its life easier and the FBI not having to go to the NSA if they want a phone broken into, and basically, more broadly, the government co-opting Silicon Valley into its surveillance and law enforcement. And there's definitely a sense that if this were a really important case, um, that if this were Osama bin Laden's iPhone or, or something of that a caliber, that the FBI could go to the NSA and say, hey, guys, could you help us out? I, I want to bring this conversation to some of the just kind of basic privacy issues that are at stake. Because, um, mm-hmm. frankly, I had a hard time understanding them, And I think, at first. Because uh, I, I looked at the situation, I, I thought, okay, a lot of people are talking about a slippery slope and what happens if China gets this backdoor and what happens if Russia gets this backdoor, if, yep. if Apple creates it. And I kept thinking to myself, well, we're only talking about a way to access a physical iPhone. Yes. And to me, it says if Russia has your physical iPhone or China does, you're probably already sort of screwed. Like if they've already raided mm-hmm. your apartment, like you're really, your That's... days are numbered to begin with. And so you, you talk about this issue um, in a way that made me kind of question my initial assumptions. But you talk about the difference in, in your letter between uh, data that's being transmitted and how that is safeguarded through cryptography and data that's just sitting on your phone and why we should think differently about those two and why they're both kind of important. I was hoping you could just maybe discuss that a little so people listening might have that kind of just be able to kind of frame that for themselves. Okay. So um, the, the distinction I tried to make was between data that's in transit and data that's at rest. So data that's in transit are things like the uh, your text messages, your emails, uh, the slightly more secure uh, messages from, from Apple's iMessage service. And that, in, in practice, that's for, you know, against um, most attackers, that's pretty easy to secure. The, the cryptography is good enough. 
Um, you know, there are always flaws, but it's probably secure enough that you don't really have to worry about a casual attacker reading your, your iMessages. Um, whether you have to worry about the NSA, well, that, that depends on who, who your threat really is. Um, data that's on your phone is harder to secure. Data that's, that's in storage, that's at rest. Um, these are, you know, the, your phone is designed to let you look at that data. Uh, Apple has various features. By default, the passcode might not, even be, might not even be required until after 5 or 15 minutes, depending on how you set it up. Uh, you might have fingerprint smudges on your phone that reveal what your passcode is, uh, like on a, an ATM pin pad. And, um, it, and they're, they're, you're just a lot more exposed to potential flaws in, in how the security is realized. So okay. And so why, you know, what is the big concern about giving more, I, I, I guess, what is the big concern, say, for an American about giving the government more access to data that's at rest? What should frighten us about that, in your opinion? I'd like to jump in here again, and I'd like to bring up this very specific point that, uh, you know, that has nothing to do with Apple, once again, but which I think um, is lost in the, most of the conversations about this, which is that the government, our government, has responsibility to protect all of our privacy. Um, obviously, the San Bernardino killer doesn't have um, the right to privacy in this in this situation. But until the government admits, the FBI in particular, admits that once they start asking private companies to, to make backdoors many, many times a year, um, that they should be admitting, rather, they should be admitting that they are actually putting the rest of us at risk, our privacy at risk. They're not doing that. Let me just ask Guan about this to, to can, can I say like just a wrap little up of... here. Do you, Guan, do you buy that the U.S. government exists in some part to protect our privacy? I, I think it does. And I think there's, there's certainly a conflict of interest here. I mean, there are agencies and groups within the government that do a lot to protect privacy, the, F, the FTC, the FCC, the National Institute of Standards and Technology. And one of the dangerous things that has happened in this round of the crypto wars was when it was revealed that the NSA basically got to introduce a backdoor in a standard, in a federal government encryption standard that was, um, that was published by the NIST. And in the Apple case, um, as, as several people have, have brought up, um, Apple will also face a similar conflict of interest that if Apple is forced to, to assist in six or 7,000 of these device requests per year to, even though they're individual backdoors, to basically create, create 7,000 backdoors, um, it's certainly, I believe, as an Apple customer, it's certainly Apple's job to protect my privacy. But Apple will sit with a conflict of interest that the better Apple's able to protect my privacy, the more difficult Apple's job will be in the 6,000 cases where it has to comply with these court orders. But, I mean, as a citizen of the United States, I, mm -hmm. want, I want to be able to complain about my government not protecting all yeah. my privacy. I have no power over Apple protecting my privacy or not. I guess that's my, my fundamental problem is that we're not complaining about the government's role enough about in this. We're just talking about what Apple should do. Yeah, but I mean, also the government has two interests. Even if you do think the government has some interest in protecting privacy, it does also have a law enforcement interest that a lot of people I think are very, very worried about, especially since we're not even, you know, just to make it clear, we're not even talking about something like bulk data collection or a warrantless spying at this point. We're talking about things that are going through the normal court system. I mean, that's, we're not, 
we're not talking about the government trying to do something illegal and enlisting. Um, we're, we're, you know, it is a little scary. I the, think the that scandal, the, the scandal, Jordan, as ever, is yeah. not what's illegal. The scandal is what's legal. Um, but we we <laughs> have to we have to end it there on I think what is probably a suitably um, unresolved note because this this story no one really knows why the government is going to court and trying to get Apple to do this no one really knows how much Apple has cooperated in the past and how much of a, of a how much they've diverged from previous practice there's a lot unknown here but it's complex and. I urge you all to read Guan's newsletter on this because he really does an amazing job of teasing out a lot of those complexities. But we're going to stay on the subject of um, technology and complexity. Um, we're going to talk about Sci-Hub, which is fascinating. But first, I need to talk about ZipRecruiter, which is this website, which allows you to hire people really easily. Instead of posting your job on a whole bunch of different websites and hoping that the right person will find that job posting. You just go to ZipRecruiter once, post your position once, and they will post it to hundreds of different places and find you exactly the right person that you want to hire. You can go over a hundred different job sites with a single click. It has been used by over 400,000 businesses to match from over 4 million resumes. It's kind of amazing. So try ZipRecruiter for free. If you go to ZipRecruiter.com slash slate money, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash slate money to try ZipRecruiter for free and find exactly the right person. ZipRecruiter.com slash slate money. All right, Jordan. Yes, we're going to talk about Sci-Hub, which, uh, it's just the story just kind of makes my heart happy. I'm, I'm just gonna I'm gonna put that out there right because now. Because a minute ago you were like all on the side of law, law enforcement, and now you're like law enforcement be damned. No, this is a totally different issue, man. This is totally <laughs> different. So okay, so what is SciHub? SciHub is uh, this website. It's sort of like the pirate bay of academic papers. It's a site that, let's put it very bluntly, helps people pirate academic research papers that have been put behind a paywall. So if you're looking for, you know, some, you know, a paper on neurobiology that costs $30 because, you know, Elsevier owns it, um, you can go and you can take the URL for that paper and you can throw it into a Sci-Hub search engine. And what Sci-Hub will do is it will go fetch a copy of that paper, essentially using a login donated uh, quote unquote, <laughs> by <laughs> uh, by one of its you know academic helpers, someone from a university that has a subscription, and then what SciHub does is, as it gives you a copy of that paper, it also adds a copy to its big database, so it just has them on hand. This uh, site was created, um, site service, whatever you want to call it, was created by a uh, Kazakhstani graduate student, I believe, in 2011. Um, I'm, I want to make sure I pronounce her name right, Alexandra Elbakian. Um, and, you know, it gained in popularity. Uh, eventually, um, the Elsevier, which is one of the big, one of the world's largest academic publishers, uh, took, uh, took her to court in New York, in the Southern District of New York, in New York Federal Court, and filed a lawsuit, uh, got an injunction to take the site down. Uh, and that happened last year. However, uh, SciHub is now back up. 
And a lot of academics are very happy about this. And, you know, the reason the story is interesting is it brings up all sorts of issues about uh, what good is the academic publishing industry anyway? Should knowledge be free? There are all sorts of things to discuss here. But I want to just ask everyone first, does anyone here think there's really, is anyone here against what Sci-Hub's doing? Is anyone anti? I think Sci-Hub's amazing. Okay. Does it work well for you? Like, I, I tried to, you know, uh, I, I didn't know what papers to look for, so I tried to look for some classic finance papers, and I, I didn't have a huge success rate with it. I, I, I'm i not going to say how much I've used it, but <laughs> I've played around. <laughs> I've certainly fetched some things that I had a tough time getting before. It worked pretty well. Where is it hosted now that it is out of the reach of the, of the courts? Yeah, so th- what they've done is, and this kind of speaks to the whole, you know, and this gets back to kind of the data security issue. So it... It used to be a .org. Now it is a .io, which I believe it's like some Brit- – it's a, it's essentially British territory. So the U.S. doesn't necessarily have jurisdiction. The British over- Indian Ocean Territory. Yeah, British Indian Ocean Territory. It doesn't. The U.S. doesn't have jurisdiction. Um, plus the woman who runs it is now in either Kazakhstan or Russia. Uh, so it's very – she doesn't have any assets in the U.S. So they can't really go after her. And then on top of that, it also functions through the Tor network. Um, which allows a lot of the dark internet to function. Essentially, it's a network of computers that disguises where your site is from, where its uh, server exists. So it makes it even more... It was something allowed Silk Road, for instance, to operate for a very long time. So I want to bring in Guan here um, for two reasons. Number one, um, Guan was a a friend of Aaron Swartz who tried to do something quite similar. Um, But number two, you you really understand... um, the economics of of the publishing industry and of you know publishing knowledge and that kind of stuff. So the question which I have for you is: Is there a credible case to be made that Elsevier and the other scientific publishers are being significantly harmed financially by the existence of SciHub? And if so, um, you know, should we? care about that so to your first question it would be really hard to make that case like sci-hub is you know it's it's fun it's useful to some people um as a as, and it's fun as a form of civil disobedience but um the fact is that nobody was really buying academic papers for 35 dollars a pop um the people who are paying elsevier are libraries university and college libraries um, library systems who by these big bundle bundled contracts uh, that cost millions of dollars a year, and then they give everyone on campus access uh, to the articles. Um, and uh, my guess is that it's a tiny percentage of of Elsevier's revenue that comes from sale of thirty five dollars papers. And like to your second point, Felix, I just want to throw in that I don't think anyone feels sorry for Elsevier. I mean, <laughs> there's actually it's the, there's more context here. There's been like at least in math, maybe one you know of other fields, but. Uh, there's been a pretty widespread boycott of Elsevier for various reasons. One of them being how much they charge libraries. Another one being that they, um, the way academic uh, publishing actually works is that they get professors to do like free um, editing, and then they then they charge just a shitload of money to for people to get the resulting papers. I mean, the, the authors are basically paid by the public through research grants. Yes. The editors aren't paid. Right. The referees aren't so paid. So the content is free for them. The work to edit it is free. And then they charge for publication. So it okay, doesn't so, seem so like we a fair have, system. So, wait. We I, have I, two so PhDs in, in, in the studio right now. So um, I need I need to ask you guys, like, how did this system come about? And 
and yeah, like, how is it that all of this research in the name of science, which is meant to be public and everyone gets to share it and stand on the shoulders of everyone who went before them and so on, so on and so forth. How did that all wind up behind these enormous paywall, paywalls in the first place? I mean, I, I'm not I'm not a historian of all this stuff, but I, I do want to say that there's two things going on. First, um, that there is very strict rules about how much, I mean, they're not very specific, but they are strict rules about how much you have to publish in official papers to get tenure. So there's this kind of like, everyone has to buy into the system, at least when they're young. And by the time they're old, they already have tenure. So whatever. Um, and the second thing is that in spite of that, they're almost not used. The actual um, published journals is not where people get their mathematics anyway. They get it from the preprint archives, which are much more timely and much more available and totally free. Yeah, so I can I can speak to the history actually a little bit, which is, I, it's, it's pretty simple in the sense that these journals used to do a very important service, which was, you know, before the internet, someone had to actually edit and then print and then distribute all this stuff to libraries, just like, you know, publishers distribute books. When it, print was the natural distribution system for academic literature, they needed these journals to do that service. Um, having a actual professors do peer review for free, it was just kind of became part of that system because no one had a sense that they were being ripped off. The journals were valuable. However, with the internet, all of a sudden, you have these giant companies, which, by the way, have been consolidating. Companies like um, the, the major academic publishers have bought up smaller publishers. So now I think it's about five that own a vast, like 70% of the market. Um, as a result, they've, they are collecting what we call rents in economics, economic rents. It's just where you are scraping money from the system without actually adding value. And in most fields, um, so... Kathy mentioned the tenure system. In most fields, uh, to get tenure, you often have to have a certain number of publications in, in so-called top journals. And in most fields, it's really, really hard to change the perception in tenure committees with deans about what the top journals are. So you can have a boycott, and you can start up new open access journals very successfully in certain fields. Um, I know in math, in, in, in biology, they've been very successful in new open access journals. But it's really hard and it takes decades to sort of persuade people that these journals are really top journals and the people who publish in them should get tenure. This also um, is actually a, a, maybe a good example of why we occasionally should be afraid of money in politics. I know I've probably been, I'm probably one of the shows least afraid, but um, you do have these giant companies that uh, have a, a economic interest in keeping this stuff locked behind their paywalls. They don't add any value. Um, However, one of the ways to fight that is through legislation. The, right now, the NIH requires uh, publishers to eventually put up research after X number of months, that if it's funded with NIH money, it has to be free to the public eventually. The National Science Foundation has also now just recently implemented a rule along these lines. These publishers have tried in the past to lobby to ban the NSF and NIH from requiring that the publish the pub, that the, the the research the public pays for be made available freely to the public. It's crazy. Um, these efforts have failed so far, but it, there's nothing saying they won't try to do it again in the future. Uh, even if we solve all these problems, even if 100% of exciting new research is in open access journals starting tomorrow, you still have this problem of all the previous research. Um, you know, going back to to when uh, to everything that's still in copyright. Uh, that people in at least in fields like economics and finance often need access to to understand the the whole literature and there's not there aren't any obvious solutions to freeing uh, that old stuff uh, maybe maybe SciHub is the solution maybe thank you all right so we are next I'm 
this is where everyone who isn't a complete nerd can probably start tuning out. But seriously, I'm going to say one thing. Argentina. I have talked about Argentina <laughs> a lot on this show. I'm going to talk about Argentina one more time. And then this might be the last time I talk about Argentina. So this is the wrap it all up in a bow sort of Argentina discussion. You want to hang around for that. But first, you want to make sure that you go out and you order your Bolin Branch sheets because they're sponsoring state money and we like Bolin Branch. They are free trade. They're organic. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee. They are super comfortable. They are super soft. They are everything you want in sheets and towels and duvet covers and pillowcases and everything. And you can get 20% off your entire order if you use the promo code MONEY. So this is what you do. You want to sleep well. You want to dream beautifully. You want to have a lovely night's sleep. So you go to bollandbranch.com, B-O-L-L and branch.com. You put in the promo code MONEY, and you get the first honest and transparent and super luxury bedding that you've probably ever had for 20% off with free shipping. So once again, bollandbranch.com, promo code MONEY. Um, okay, so Argentina. Felix, I love, this. I Felix, love this story so much. Felix, can I ask you something about Argentina? Yes. What's going on in Argentina? <laughs> <laughs> well, Kathy, as you may recall from previous episodes of Slate Money, um, Argentina was the subject of a pretty nuclear injunction by a New York judge called Thomas Grisset, who said that if Argentina wasn't paying a bunch of vulture fund, hedge fund bondholders who had a bunch of old defaulted debt, then it couldn't pay any bondholders any debt. It was an unprecedented um, remedy for, um, for default, which no one ever thought that the U.S. courts would ever do. And then he did it. And then it was upheld by the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. And it more or less changed the entire landscape of, of sovereign debt, which is my favorite little landscape of all of finance. So I've been obsessed with this story um, for many, many years. And one of the main reasons why um, this injunction came down was because the U.S. courts, this is debt which was issued under U.S. law, the U.S. courts decided that Argentina was being contumacious, which is my favorite word, um, that Argentina was basically cocking a snook at the U.S. courts. Oh, that explains it. That explains that, that word. Well. Thank you. <laughs> um, so now what happened is that Argentina has a new government, a new president, Mr. Macri, and it is being much less contumacious. And in fact, it's making friendly overtures to its old defaulted bondholders. And it's coming to settlements with them. And it's paying them off. And it hasn't paid all of them off. It hasn't settled with all of them. But they did go to Judge Grisey and say, hey, look, we're nice and we're friendly and we're not being contumacious anymore. And we're giving people more than 100 cents on the dollar for their claims. Well, not on the claims, but on principle of the bonds that they own, which they bought for you know pennies on the dollar in some cases. And so can you please lift this horrible nuclear injunction? Because we're not evil, contumacious Argentina anymore. And to quite a lot of people's surprise... Judge Grisey said, yes, 
Which means the whole thing is over. Does but, it not? But there are still some holdouts for... There are still holdouts. And the number one most important holdout, the one who paid nearly, you know, the, the lion's share of the legal fees that the holdouts spent, um, the one who owns more debt than anyone else, the one who's noisiest, the one who has been driving a lot of the lobbying and these weird, like, astroturf groups and everything, that one notorious holdout, Elliot Associates, has still not settled. And Elliot, when Grisey's injunction came down originally, this was a massive victory for Elliot Associates. And now it's looking like they really need to settle pretty quickly. So the, um, so the deadline is at the end of the month, right? they could be in a pretty bad position. I read that there are rumors that, uh, as of last night, there were rumors going around that they were coming in close to a settlement. I don't know. Uh, nothing nothing settled. Nothing yet. But it, apparently we're, we're getting to the end game, or so the Wall Street Journal was telling me. The, the key date here is February the 29th for various legal reasons, which are too boring to go into. But essentially, if Argentina can do various things, which it can do quite easily about take, getting rid of this thing called the lock law and paying off various other bondholders. And if the Second Circuit um, signs off on this, which it almost certainly will, then what happens is that Elliott Associates loses um, all of its leverage. Like up until right now, Elliot Associates has been able to say, you need to settle with us or you need to keep all of your bondholders um, all over the world in default, even the ones you really, really want to be paying. Um, and then as of you know March, Argentina can say, well, that's not the case anymore. We don't need to settle with you because we now can just go back to paying our bondholders like we were before and you can just be... A, a tiny little holdout, and we can ignore so, uh, you. So, Felix, what is your what is your prediction? Like, come February twenty ninth, will uh, will Elliot Associates have settled with Argentina? Or my guess is that they will, because they know that they have made a huge profit on this investment, and it's really incredibly hard to see how they can make an even bigger profit than the offer which Argentina is putting on the table right now. Elliott Associates has been very sophisticated. It's trying to claim, in some cases, two or even 300 cents on the dollar for the, um, for the paper that it bought for like 20 or 30 cents on the dollar because of various like clever ways of calculating interest on interest and calculating interest in some cases at over 100% per year because, again, you know, it gets complicated, but they, they reckon that was the final interest rate on variable rate notes. And so that's the rate it should be compounding at and this kind of thing. So they're using a lot of very sort of skeevy math to come up with the highest numbers they, they, they can. But ultimately, they're being offered, you know, call it 150 cents on the dollar for debt, which they bought for 20 or 30 cents. That's not a bad return for them. Felix, the, so um, apart from just the legal details, one of the really interesting things about this whole case is how wide-reaching Judge Grisey's orders are. Like basically any, you know, he, uh, Argentina was not even allowed to pay local currency, local law bonds uh, if Citibank Argentina was involved and just how any company that had the tiniest connection to the United States and to, to the Southern District of New York um, was, was suddenly, you know, uh, under 
Judge Grisay's thumb. Um, is, is there anything? Um, is there anything that people in these markets are doing in the future to protect themselves against that? Is there anything they can do? Uh, the answer. So you're absolutely right. This um, nuclear remedy, as it's known, um, was a clear case of judicial overreach. It's it's hard to see how it's justifiable. Um, I, for one, and a lot of other jurists, well, I'm not a jurist, but a lot of jurists were saying this is insane. This makes no sense. Um, but yes, so going forwards, we've already seen this, that when countries issue new debt, the pari passu clause, which is this tiny little piece of boilerplate which no one paid any attention to in the past and really means nothing in a sovereign context. Um, that clause was seized upon by Elliott Associates and by, and by Judge Grisey as the excuse for bringing down this nuclear remedy. And that peripassu clause has now been reworded in new bond contracts so that it makes it very clear that you can't um, interpret it in the way that Grisey interpreted it. You know, now, does that mean that like an activist judge couldn't seize on some other clause and enact the same remedy. It's unclear, but it's certainly the easy way to get there has now is now slowly being being taken away. Of course, most bonds out there still have the old clauses. It takes a long, long time for the old bonds to get paid off and for the new bonds with the new clauses to replace them. One of the things that's really crazy about this whole story, and I, I think it's one of the reasons you like it so much, Felix, is how idiosyncratic it is. I mean, it just completely depends on the judges of personality, um, various maybe how much coffee he had a certain on a certain morning, and it doesn't seem to have any like. There's no moral of this story. Well, actually, I want to ask that. So, Felix, you were just saying that this. I mean, Elliot's going to make a a boatload of money off this deal, uh, off, off this effort of theirs. Maybe eventually. Eventually. So, given that on the one hand, and then on the other hand, you have the fact that these contracts are being changed in the future. They're they're changing these clauses. It's going to make it a little bit more difficult to pull these maneuvers in court. What do you think the incentives are for distressed sovereign debt funds going forward now that we've seen this all play out? So the the slogan in the in the distressed debt world is Greece and Grise. That we've seen two big unexpected things happen, you know, in terms of sovereign debt defaults. Um, sovereign debt defaults don't happen that often and certainly not at this magnitude. But the two biggest sovereign de debt defaults in history were, were Greece and Argentina. And in both cases now, what we're seeing is the holdouts essentially getting paid off in full. In the case of Greece, there wasn't even a f Greece didn't even really put up a fight. They just paid off the holdouts. A lot of the time, if you do some kind of an exchange offer, if you're a country and there's two or 3% of bonds left over, you just mop them up by paying them off in full because it's cheaper to do that than to just have an ongoing legal fight for decades. Um, so Greece paid off its holdouts. Argentina is now paying off its holdouts after you know a, many, many years of Kirchner um, recalcitrance. And so it's looking you know, that the balance of power is moving back towards the holdouts. That if you have the patience and if you have deep enough pockets to be able to fight a long legal fight, maybe it's more likely that you'll wind up getting paid out. Um, and maybe that's going to make it that much more difficult for countries to restructure the, the, their debts going forward. 
I don't think that's a good thing. No, it's not. <laughs> I don't think that's. that's I, really I want to see bondholders lose money. <laughs> that's I really a, do. That, that's a really from like from somebody who cares more about macro than about like the sanctity of the bond markets. Like that's a that's a really sad answer. But what about but, macro? Like, will will this settlement? You well, know, yeah. So there's, solve Argentina's economic problems. Okay, so that's a good question. There's actually been some research on this about like how quickly countries tend to recover from financial crises and from sovereign defaults, um, and. Typically, you kind of need to resolve all of your holdouts and and you know, re- resolve your past issues and get back into the bond markets for everything to kind of clear up. So theoretically, this should be good for Argentina. Uh, you want to see countries just put this stuff to bed. Um, on the other hand, Argentina has so many other problems with like hyperinflation right <laughs> now, and just it, it's kind of a mess. So I, it's hard to say. Like I, I don't think this is going to suddenly be a cure all for them. Maybe it's a step in the right direction, but. And and but even if it is a step in the right direction, it's an incredibly expensive step in the right direction. It's costing billions of dollars, which are going to you know New York hedge fund managers and various gazillionaires. When that money, you know, is money which the Argentine population desperately needs, and it's sad that they're having to pay I, this much money right now. I have a I have a, a ridiculous prediction, which is that when the millennials become judges, they're going to have a lot more sympathy. Because <laughs> they're going to be. It is true. It is true that Thomas Cuisset. He's really is old. Far, far from being a millennial. It, He's it, in his eighties. It's true, and like basically every millennial who knows this case knows it as like the case where a hedge fund stole Argentina's yacht. Like that's <laughs> it's not even an accurate not description, a, a but yacht, that's how. But yeah. It's like it was a military ship, but that's the case we know it as. Like, I, I, you know, I, I still think there's like a lesson here, uh, <laughs> drawing a connection to the Apple case, where the U.S. government, or in this case, one judge in the government likes to use the dominance of American technology and financial companies to sort of um, exert its influence worldwide um, without necessarily considering what consequences that will have for the same companies. You know, will will American depository companies lose market share because of this, this order? It's true. I don't know. I mean, it's a it's a concern. And, and, and certainly, I mean, there's absolutely no doubt that there's a double standard going on here and that if any other foreign country had treated the, um, the, U- the USA in a foreign court the way that American courts had treated Argentina, America would not be taking that lying down. So enough on Argentina. The numbers round I already know is going to be a great one. Uh, I do need to talk first about MileIQ, which is this app you just put on your phone and which measures all of the miles that you drive, which sounds like a relatively pointless app until you realize that a huge number of those miles, like, you know, thousands of them, are actually reimbursable. If you drive for business, if you can get your mileage reimbursed, the average mile IQ the average mile IQ user logs five hundred and forty seven dollars a month in drives. That's over six thousand dollars a year in miles, and that's money you could be claiming. It's basically free money, and it's so easy with mile IQ. You put it on your phone, and it logs it all for you, and it tells you how much money to pay f- you, you can claim for, and it does all the paperwork for you. And rather than just being one of those chores which you never get around to, it's just something which feeds you money. It's it's literally an app which just makes you money. So what you should do is text Slate Money to 31996. That will start a 40-drive free trial of MileIQ. Um, and if you create an account this week, you'll get 20% off an annual plan. So text Slate Money 
to 31996. And then if you sign up, which you will because it's free money, um, you'll get 20% off the cost of Mile IQ. So do that. And now to the numbers round. I'm going to go first because I never go first. And because if I don't go first, I'm worried that someone else is going to have the $400 million number, which is the amount of money that Phil Knight, the founder of Nike, just gave to the Stanford Endowment, which is, I think, last I, t- last I looked, about $22.5 billion. Like, I just do not, cannot understand why anyone with a single philanthropic bone in their body would pour $400 million, which can do so much good in so many different places, into like this seemingly bottomless pit of money that is a major endowment like Stanford's and think that that's like a smart or sensible thing what, to do with that What cash. is he doing? Uh, what, or what is he endowing with it? Anything specific? Or did he just like pour more money down the gullet? Well, if you if you give a university four hundred million dollars, they're going to put your name on something. Yeah. So the thing that they're putting his name on is something called the Knight Hel- Knight Hennessy Scholars Program, which is essentially the Stanford version of Rhodes Scholars, where they'll take a hundred students per year and give them a graduate degree. Oh, that's so pointless. <laughs> don't go to grad school. So I mean, just, just I mean, to put this in perspective, that. because it's all about the endowment. Um, Phil Knight's money is going to be contributing about $20 million a year to this program. The amount of money that the endowment is spending this year is $1.15 billion. So if they just increased that to $1.17 billion, that would have the same effect. God, the, anyway, the marginal Sad. good he's doing in the world is like, is so. Uh, anyway, I can't even. <laughs> so it's like, no, there is no marginal good. It's, Jordan. Okay, my number is not econ or finance related, but I mean, I don't know. We should have numbers. Wait, about... do you know what podcast you're on? Yeah, Jordan? I know, but I feel like we should have numbers about like the end of the world, right? Anyway, just okay. like as so, my number's twenty percent, give or take a little. Um, it's from a YouGov survey. Apparently, twenty percent of Donald Trump supporters disapproved of Lincoln's decision to free the slaves. Yes, <laughs> I heard. I that just, time. I just, I can't. I can't. Nobody like, can. Nobody like, can. I mean. I, I really want to know. It's, did they ask about their reasoning? Or? Did you, I know, because it was a survey. They just said, did you? I mean, like, maybe a lot of those people answered were trolling the survey taker, but it's just, uh. Oh, I need to go next. Anyway, God like, damn it. <laughs> I need to go next. My number's 20%, but it's it fits very well with, with Jordan's. My, name, my number's 20%. That's the difference in, the, in polling versus uh, betting markets. So it it's kind of related, right? Okay. You, we we think that that poll is kind of inaccurate. I my guess is that if people had to put their money on something, they would it would be different from just saying their wait, opinion. Wait, wait, Kathy, Kathy, yeah. like yeah. give me give me the numbers here. What's it's a 20% difference between what and what? It, so my number is uh 20%, which is the difference between um what what the the chances are for Brexit polling which is around 50%. So when when people are called up and say in Britain and say are is Britain going to leave, you know, the European Union, 50% of them say yes, yes and 50% say no. But in the um in the betting market, 70% it's you know, the the money is on staying, Britain's staying. So the money is on no Brexit. 70% chance of no Brexit. Yeah, but like I feel like we're finding that betting markets are more reactive than predictive on a lot of this stuff. And if I were an annoying finance person, I would say something about the 
betting markets being used for hedging, so it doesn't necessarily reflect no, please probability. Oh no, go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. Finance market. Get deeper into that, man. Um, well, I mean, uh, so the point is just that prices in a betting market don't necessarily. You need a lot of assumptions for them to actually reflect people's predictions about the probability of something happening. Because if you're afraid, let's say you're afraid of Brexit, you lose money if that happens. You would want to buy insurance against it, and you would. In, in a market, an equilibrium might be expected to pay some kind of premium for that, which means that that drives a wedge in between the, the betting market probabilities and some but sort of But that's the wrong way around. That would, that would make Brexit more likely in the betting markets, and in fact, Brexit is less likely. Okay, so let's say there are a lot of people who would profit from Brexit. No one is going to be profiting from <laughs> Brexit. Someone might be. There's got to be like one dude. Maybe. Isn't that like a, an arbitrage opportunity, though? If it's the market's way off, then I'll bet the, the right way. If there are a lot of risk-neutral agents. Oh, there but, is. Yeah, I mean, I will say one thing. Like, the betting markets in the U.S. on the presidential election have just swung with polls and with individual caucuses, I mean, it's, or, or primaries. It seems like they're not really predicting much of anything. It's Anyway. Anyway, uh, 20% uh, is a lot of difference. So the number well, I, what's your number? The number I brought is about Apple, since we were talking about Apple. And the number is one. Um, there are no units on it. It's dimensionless. Uh, and one is the number of P&Ls at Apple, or, or profit and loss statements. So um, a P&L is a, uh, basically a unit of accounting inside a corporation. Each division might have one, or each, each product might have one. And it measures the, basically the financial performance of that division or that product or that group. Um, and Apple has one PL. It's basically run as a single unit globally, which is um, really strange. And this is really unusual for a company that size. Um, and the, the idea is that you, you operate the company with one strategy. So you don't have, you're not worried about cannibalization, for example, that one product, uh, the, the iPhone will cannibalize the iPod. You're not worried about stores spending a little extra uh, to be more profitable if it hurts service or sales or, or some other aspect that will that will contribute to profits. It's it's sort of like a beautiful unitary whole, just like mm -hmm. Steve Jobs' vision of technology. Exactly. I mean, there's some details. <laughs> of course, there are metrics. Um, there, of course, there are metrics that they use within the company. But on paper, at least, this is what they say, that it's it's one company. And financial types are just so angry that they can't break into the profit and loss statement <laughs> and, and so, get more so detailed. This is, this is exactly... This is exactly the opposite to the way that Google, you know, became Alphabet and created a whole bunch of almost entirely autonomous separate companies, each with their own P&L and so forth. So Apple is in this sense like the anti-Google? Yes, exactly. Or the anti-Alphabet? Yep. Apple is the anti-Alphabet. Amazing. Okay, so thank you very much to the one and only Guan Yang. You're welcome back anytime because you're awesome. Um Thank you, listeners, for listening. If you like the show, subscribe. Um, find us by searching for Slate Money in the iTunes store. Leave a review there. Write to us. The email address is always slatemoney at slate.com. Thank you to Audrey Quinn, who's managed to work out the rather complex telephony situation to record the show this week. Thank you to Steve Lichtai and Andy Bowers, the executive producers. Slate Money is part of the Panoply Network, so check all of those out at iTunes.com slash Panoply. And we will talk to you next week on Slate Money.
Hi, I'm Ezra Klein, editor-in-chief of Vox.com, and I've got a new podcast on the Panoply Network. It is called The Ezra Klein Show, which I'm never going to be able to say without feeling like a terrible, terrible narcissist. But it's long-form, intimate, real conversations with newsmakers, with politicians, policymakers, journalists, business leaders, people who are influencing the world in fascinating and important ways. We talk about what they think, why they think it, what they believe. I've really enjoyed getting a chance to talk with these people, and I hope you enjoy it too. You can find it wherever fine podcasts are given away for free over the internet. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.